Hi, I'm Kevin Alvis with Big Talk Podcasts. I believe that everyone needs to treat themselves for a job well done. Whether it's surviving a workday jam-packed with mind-numbing meetings or that five-mile bike ride down the lake with your friends, nothing says, I fucking crushed this like a delicious cold beer. And there's no finer place to treat yourself than Chicago's northernmost taproom, Howard Street Brewing. Just steps from the Howard Street Red Line, Howard Street Brewing offers a cozy 37-seat taproom that's perfect for catching up with old friends or making some new ones. And don't let their one-barrel system fool you. It's perfectly pumping out a rotating menu of amazing beers like Rogers Proud Pale Ale, the Better Late Than Never Pilsner, and the This Is What Happens Larry Belgian Saison. Not sure what to try? Get a flight. Try them all. Like that beer and want some for the after party? Grab a few growlers for the road. You want some sweet merch with your beers? They've got hats and t-shirts ready for you too. So if you're in Chicago or planning a trip to Chicago, be sure to check out Howard Street Brewing. Open Tuesday through Sunday. No cash, cards only. Oh, and did I mention that there's entertainment every Tuesday night and trivia every Wednesday night? Oh, 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 and did I mention that you can have food from all the local spots delivered right to your table? Oh, 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 and did I mention that they're pet friendly? This place is the shit. So check out Howard Street Brewing, located at 1617 West Howard Street in Chicago and at howardstreetbrewing.com. Be sure to tell them Big Talk sent ya. Welcome to Based on a True Story, where Chicago's best writers and storytellers take their true personal stories and adapt them into wild tales of fiction. Recorded live the fourth Tuesday of every month at Howard Street Brewing, located at 1617 West Howard Street in Chicago. Our first story comes from writer, actor, and comedian Josh Zagorin. Uh, okay, this, uh, this is a uh, screenplay. Uh, it's a pitch. It's just a pitch for you guys. You're the people I'm pitching to. You have the money. Uh, exterior, college, you know the kind, it's sunny, no clouds, there's a ton of kids out on the quad, just any quad, pick a quad, you know what it is, the quad, green grass, people laughing, chewing gum, drinking sodas, playfully nudging, there's someone holding an innocuous sweet treat, like a, like a, like a churro, it looks tasty, but it's probably fine, fancy poles are lining the walkway with useless chains on them, because no one is being discouraged from using the grass, both figuratively and literatively, Dogs play past guys in knit hats hacking sacks whilst the smart kids walk by in a button-down shirt smiling harder than the extras in a pharmaceutical ad for Mormons. Their future brighter than their teeth and you know that they're smart because they got books. And Gorilla's 19-2000 is pumping somewhere in the atmosphere. 2001. Transition. Some jean-wearing teen drops their books on the pavement. It transitions into a beat-up-looking notebook looking flung open, camera pans back, and we're in class. The viewer is thinking, oh, it was so much nicer out there. We should be out there. And they're not actually wondering, what the hell day is it? And what the hell time is it? We got day classes going on, and there's a shit ton of people outside on the quad. There's no time for questions. We see our hero. He's played by William Jackson Harper. He's wearing a blue Baja and hemp shorts. He definitely looks like somebody who has a favorite Back to the Future movie and will tell you why, but he just started smoking pot. He's barely paying attention to the droning old guy in the front suit looking like a librarian who is also secretly a vampire hunter trainer, but that's for the spinoff. We're going to get Dave Filoni to do the lore. His cell phone vibrates, and before the producer's nephew Tristan starts up, yes, 
they did have cell phones back in 2001, but they were thick, and they made everybody look like they worked on an offshore oil rig. It's text, a text message. Oh, shit, it's a text message. Yeah, I, we, I mean, they had those too. It's from someone with a name that you know means it's going to be a fun night, but you also know that you're probably going to have a moment that you're worried you're going to get arrested, like uh, Vance or something. Anyway, Vance is texting our hero, who's got a name that's a classic nerd archetype, but could also double as a real name in the Matrix and has enough syllables to sound hilarious when being yelled at by a, co a coach to get off the bench. Let's go with Nimoy. Anyway, close up on Vance's text. Look out the window. Nimoy reluctantly does so. Exterior, college. Vance is standing right outside the window a few floors down on the street, smiling. Camera lingers because you got to take this guy in. He's dressed like Robert Redford playing a charming jewel thief in a movie made in the 1960s. He's waving, holding a pipe, wearing mirrored sunglasses, standing next to camera pans over. A 1986 Chevrolet station wagon with a Porsche spoiler soldered to the roof, painted chrome with an American flag sticking out of the back, making the whole thing look like a moon rover, had a baby with the road from that one episode where Homer builds a car. Interior. Back in the classroom. Nimoy grabs his things and bails. Teacher doesn't even notice because, come on, adventure is coming. When is the last time you went on an adventure? Exterior. Outside, Vance opens the car door for Nimoy like it's a chariot. They're both impressed with the interior. 80s mom car tricked out with black lights, blanket snacks, various closed compartments, portly hiding beers, and a portable stereo. Camera pans over the moderately clean upholstery to reveal that there is no radio, hence the portable stereo. And an ashtray full of D batteries, the kind you could plug a damn with. Nimoy and Vance nod, shake hands, and we are off. They are off. Music. Anything from Weezer's Green Album. <clears throat> we see the silver nightmare barreling down 90 west in the hot sun. The chrome finish blinding drivers in oncoming and ongoing traffic, plus birds, deer, anything that happens to catch its Lovecraftian glint, frying bugs, peel from the windshield. Interior, the moon bullet. Let's call it that, because it looks like something out of a Terry Gilliam sci-fi dystopian fairy tale. Our heroes are smoking pot. A lot of pot, a McConaughey amount of pot. The interior looks like there was a malfunction with the fog machine. We can barely see the world barrel by, and it turns to night. Nimoy is in the back seat, which has been converted into a dorm room. He pulls one more hit off the kind of a glass one-hitter you would find on the coffee table in a casual display of we don't give a fuck here when roommates rent a house together. The house glass, as we, I mean they, called it. It fades into a muffled dream. Beside him sits a for-real highway map with Niagara Falls circled in Sharpie. Fade to black. Sounds muffled yelling and tapping like after a bomb explodes in a movie and there's like a whine? You know what I mean? It's dire. Nimoy shakes his head awake. First thing we notice is that it is day now. The sunlight pierces his eyes through his glasses, heating his brain awake. But he has a look of whatever since his brain is already pretty fried. What's a little morning going to do? He focuses. The camera focuses. We see there are large humans around the car. Very large. Like, very large. Like, at first, Nimoy thinks they're robots. Hoping for Transformers, praying they're not Terminators. As we focus more and the camera stops bobbing like a bored toddler, we find that, no, nah, it's worse. They're cops. Full-on cops because they got very big guns and are pointing them at the window. Nimoy looks to Vance, who looks to Nimoy. The General Five is holy, what the actual serious fuck? Exterior, vaguely authoritarian concrete structure, but like questionably, like it's not the empire, but like a space outpost kind of threatening. Cops stand around our heroes in hard gear, not sure what kind, does that matter? It's gear, it's never good to see gear, plus the big guns. 
Our heroes are tussled. Nimoy reaches into his pocket and fingers the weed in house glass and thinks for a moment. Cut two. Nimoy is sneaking over to a trash can to dump the greens, and a Van Damme-looking cop sees him and body checks him into a brick wall, smashing his entire body into red jello. Cut back to Nimoy, still standing there having a very intense pot moment, realizing he's been standing here the whole time with these very large cops in gear and guns, one of them staring at him with anger, not the kind of anger of a merciless killer, no, but that of a DMV employee who has asked your name three times. The officer comes into focus. I said, do I need to search the car? Vance sheepishly looks to the gravel. Uh, please don't, he says with surrender. Nimoy thinks fast, but then just gives up, because really, what the fuck is happening? Shows the officers his pocket gribbles and the house glass, which of course the cops take and they are marched into the mildly threatening looking facility. Interior, office of the chief of police, or maybe it's a principal's office. It was unclear at the time. Large officer motions for Nimoy to follow him down the curiously clean and well-lit hallway into a back room that, when illuminated by the very loud light switch, looks like an elementary school classroom for adults. Nimoy is instructed to remove his pants. It is here we can make an edit if necessary, depending on how Tarantino you know the director wants to go with this? If we're going Spielberg, we'll just skip a scene. Possible narration. Yep, that's me. 9.30 a.m. with a cop's finger in my ass, wondering, how did I end up here? Theoretically, we could start the movie here, but again, that is the driver's call. Large officer asks Nimoy, am I going to find anything in here? Nimoy, if you do, I didn't put it in there. That's going to be in the trailer. Interior, office of the chief of police. Or maybe it's a school counselor. Vance looks up from the bench. Nimoy smiles and gives him a wink. Large officer makes a motion for Vance to follow. Vance looks to Nimoy like a condemned outlaw on his way to the stocks or whatever. Nimoy smiles. Vance will understand soon enough. Interior. Okay, it's definitely the chief's office. The chief. Yeah, you guys know it's illegal to bring drugs across the border to Canada. Vance and Nimoy shock themselves sober and say in unison, We're in Canada? <laughs> the chief smiles. Clearly, they are idiots. He looks at them. So, looks like you two are idiots. Vance and Nimoy. Yes, we are. The chief picks them up by the scruffs of their neck and carries them like two coats to the front of the police station where the camera reveals that this is the Canadian side of Niagara Falls and our heroes have driven through border security with a Seth Rogen amount of weed in their homemade car. The strokes play as our heroes walk embarrassingly in slow motion to the door, while the cops we recognize as the robots from earlier smile and wave, some clapping like golf pros, others shaking their heads like parents at their kids' shitty musical. Interior, Nimoy and Vance inside the moon bullet. They drive to the American side. The attendant, probably played by Jack McBrayer, asks if they enjoy their stay in Canada. Vance reaches down to his portable stereo, presses play. Born in the USA, Blair's through those shit speakers to accent the mood. They drive off into the morning because it was only 9.30 a.m. Fade out, fade in. I-80 highway, night. The mood is slightly more Coen Brothers. Vance and Nimoy are munching on Slim Jims, barely acknowledging that their buzz has been gone for years, it seems, and it was important to just get to the end. Van Morrison plays as the reds and the blue lights playfully accent the interior. Vance and Nimoy turn slowly as if this was the third time they'd run into a werewolf. The moon bullet stops. A flashlight caresses Vance's side. He rolls down the window with the apathy of a 90s teen. The light glints off the badge and we see it as an Illinois state police officer. 
The officer asks, do you know how fast you were going? Vance says, probably just shy of what I was supposed to be going. The officer chuckles warmly. Yeah, well, we got quotas and it's late, plus we're bored. Nothing much happens out here, you know. But you were going fast and I had to pull you over, especially in what I assume is a bomb that you've been driving. Hey, I'm not going to find anything in here, am I? And Nimoy... Letting the slights and jabs against his car go by with no care. Turns to the cop from the passenger side and says, Shit, no, man! He actually says, The Canadians took it all! (laughs) The officer shines the light on Nimoy. Really? We hear off camera. Hang on a second. The temperature drops. The flashlight leaves the frame, taking with it the last of the warmth. Nemo and Vance look at each other in each other's eyes. This may have been one adventure too far. Is this really the end? Radiohead begins to play when it is interrupted by the door opening and another flashlight hits Nemo in the face. We hear off camera, do you guys smoke cigars? Exterior, night, highway. Nemo and Vance are smoking cigars with the two state troopers in the Illinois twilight. The officers are played by Bill Hader and Adam Scott, so they're no, you know they're not a threat. Buttholes can unclench. The officers informed them the cigars were actually the mayor's, and they had snatched them from a party once, which, because it was 2001, would make them Richard Daly's cigars, just in case that kind of thing matters to our test audience. They are all smiles, two random parties with their own stories and histories, casually agreeing that this was indeed an incredible adventure out here on the road. The cops go off camera. We pan between our heroes, and we smile too. Because, like, in the face of all that is happening in this world right now in this time, it was a fucking trip to remember what it was like to have a for-real adventure that ended okay. Like, when's the last time you had an adventure? Don't you miss those? And that's how we... I mean, they... Ended up there on their backs, smoking Richard M. Daly's cigars on the hood of a state trooper's car at 4 a.m. in the morning on I-80 West, just outside of Illinois, back in the summer of 2001. Blackout. Credits. Danger. Been so long by Mystical featuring Nivea plays. This film was based on a true story. The names have been changed because the real people don't deserve it. Thank you so much. Our next story comes from writer, host, and producer, Jasmine Davila. So nobody had told me there would be cake, which was a shame because if I had known about the cake in advance, I would have been more than happy to help pay for the gigantic sheet cake, which was overlaid with an edible collage of pictures of James Marsters, (laughs) who you might all know as the dude who played Spike on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. This cake had been produced by fangirls of his who had gathered one sweaty night in August of 2012 at the Movie Co. in Rosemont, Illinois on the occasion of his birthday for which there would be a concert and a post-show dinner featuring the birthday boy himself. (laughs) And while my fandom of Buffy may have waned over the years, my friend Poppy's was steadfast and true. She had watched the series in its entirety multiple times. She bought the toys, the games, and the comics. And she, she loved Spike so much that she had watched his other film and TV projects um, as his as well as like the other actors from the show. So it wasn't me but her who bought expensive tickets for this fan meet and greet because she's married to a very successful lawyer and they live on the North Shore. <laughs> but when her friend chickened out, 
she invited me to take her place. Now, I didn't, and I still don't think that I have, like, get a picture with Spike while eating rubbery chicken parmesan in a movie theater in suburban Chicago money. So while I accepted her invitation, I was hoping that Poppy might let me pay her in installments because I was pretty sure, like before I knew the cost, that this evening was going to cost a lot more than a Buffy the Vampire Slayer board game. But Poppy was having none of it. The evening was her treat, and so it was my pleasure just to indulge. She picked me up in the kiss and ride lot of the Rosemont Blue Line L stop before the show. Climbing into her green Prius, I was greeted by the dulcet tones of James's band, Ghost of the Robot, playing in the car's CD player. Was the music good? Was the music bad? The band's name is Ghost of the Robot, so I'm gonna let you decide for yourselves. <laughs> Outside the theater, she produced two badges from the depths of her expensive purse. My, sil my silver badge got me a seat anywhere in rows 11 through 20 of the auditorium where James would be performing. It also included a professional photograph of me with James, or Spike, or whatever you want to call him. Let's call him Spike for the rest of the evening. Poppy's, oh, and of course, dinner with Spike himself. Poppy's gold badge got her pretty much the same thing, only she got a better seat for the concert rose one through 10, and she got to eat with James at dinner before me and the rest of the losers in the silver section. We found the auditorium reserved for the concert right away. It was the one where a line of 50 women deep had already formed, a line of women who shifted and narrowed their eyes at the two of us, made our way to the back of the line. Poppy ended up deciding to sit with me because the ladies in the gold section were giving off what I would call intense vibes. By which I mean they look like fucking assholes. And I feel bad for saying that because I was taught to respect my elders. It's hard to gin up respect for strangers who immediately regard you with unwarranted suspicion, who narrow their eyes at you and grip the handles of their handmade Buffy the Sl Vampire Slayer tote bags tight when they see you approach. Lest you touch them when the doors open and we all rush in to take our seats. Alone in the dark, perched on a bar stool like a, like a man sitting on a bar stool, sat, <laughs> sat Spike, clad in a tight black t-shirt and strategically faded jeans. He strummed a guitar and crooned acoustic versions of the terrible songs Poppy and I had listened to in the car. The actual concert was short, thankfully, which left plenty of time for questions from the audience. To exactly nobody's surprise, except perhaps Spike, 90% of those questions from the audience were about his experience playing Spike on the show Buffy, and not about his career as a singer and songwriter. He answered a question about his personal life, as he was a recently newlywed, and when he did so, you know, cr you know praising his wife, this elicited a chorus of fake awes from his admirers, who, once the show was over and we were all walking to dinner, gossiped and you know, gossiped and clucked about the fact that his wife was actually less than half his age. In the dining room, servers wearing wrinkled white button-down shirts and black polyester pants set out wooden salads and wooden bowls. Tables were set with pitchers of Pepsi products that left rings of condensation when they were picked up. Gold and silver batch holders were seated separately for dinner, though we all use the same step and repeat to get our pictures taken with Spike the birthday boy. 
after I got my picture done, I poured myself a glass of water, cola was available, and got a good look around the room. Over in the gold section, Poppy was trying to ingratiate herself with the other VIPs. Among the VIPs, there was a group of super-duper fans known as the Mafia. They went to all of his appearances at cons, bought his band's music, and showed up for special events such as this one. Now, if you had a question about James or Spike or Buffy or his appearances on Torchwood or his career recording audiobooks or his band or his wife, <laughs> the Mafia were the people to ask. But they were scary and rumored to be mean, but that only meant that they were the real fans and they cared so much about him, they had to gatekeep every little thing about him lest you stumble into the fandom like a jerk and ruin it for the rest of them. They knew everything there was to know about James and Spike and whatever you want to call him. He wasn't just their hobby, he was their destiny. Theirs was the only clique in the fandom deemed capable of judging who were the true fans and who were not. I watched these women as they ignored Poppy's overtures, her warm smiles and compliments on their homemade spike accessories going un, un, you know, un, unanswered. Now, did you crochet that spike doll all by yourself? How many cons did you travel to, travel to last year to see him? Now, tell me again, do you have three tattoos of James on your back or is it four? At my table were the Alsorans, the women who had been beaten in their purchase of gold, of gold tickets. They could only glare across the room at the victorious ones and stab away at their cold salads. I managed to befriend, befriend one nice person, a red-headed lady named Carrie, who I'm still friends with, by the way. She lives in Seattle and has miniature schnauzers. <laughs> Carrie gladly told me about all the cons she attended just to see Spike. Now, when Poppy spotted the two of us chatting away like normal people often do, she escaped the shrews and the gold section and left them to come and sit with us. Now, see, this is what I had been waiting for. The opportunity to sit down with a bunch of like-minded geeks and fans about our mutual love for a performer's body of work. I wanted to talk about new projects or discuss the merits of old ones. And while we all confessed to finding them attractive at the time, there was no sense of jealousy among us, no danger of straying into uncomfortable territory like wondering aloud what it might be like to fuck him. <laughs> Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a young woman holding a business-sized envelope. She appeared to be there with a friend, another girl who she ignored as she focused her energy on gripping that envelope and its contents. Now, there were 10 sheets of paper folded into precise thirds. She kept pulling them in and out. Every few minutes, she'd pull it out, read it to herself, then stuff it all back in. I never got to talk to her or even hear her speak, but I recognized her as someone in the depths of an, an intense emotional erotic attachment. This was the worst kind of crush. She never moved apart from taking the papers in and out. She didn't speak, not until Spike appeared in the dining room, and, when she, and she came alive. I saw her just watching him. Honestly, we all did because he was the reason we were all there. Spike was the reason why women got their hair and makeup done extra special. They put on their Spike t-shirts and jewelry and tote bags, they got tattoos. He was the reason why there is in existence a professional eight by 10 glossy photograph of me standing awkwardly at Spike's side, my hand not quite touching the small of his back, still exists somewhere in my storage unit. 
He was the reason why all of these women, not me, spent at upwards of $300 a piece for the opportunity to eat room temperature Italian food and listen to acoustic, alternative, pseudo-Celtic, goth, industrial rock music. It was Spike's birthday, and what better way to celebrate it than spending it in a room of women who would gladly stake every last one of their fellow fangirls to maybe make out with him a little bit. Spike turned up at our table for the obligatory 10-minute period of talking. He was actually really charming and gracious, answering questions he had no doubt answered many times before. Poppy surprised him, and pleasantly slow, so when she asked him about the audiobooks um, work that he had been doing recently. And I knew, I was not surprised by this, I knew she would be prepared. Now she, like me, also attended Hogwarts, and we Maroons don't mess around when it comes around to doing our homework. We were prepared. Well, she was prepared, I was just there. Um, the girl with the envelope got her chance finally, wordlessly tapping Spike on the shoulder before sliding the envelope across the table to him. Is this a letter for me? Yeah, that's exactly how he sounded. <laughs> he, ex <laughs> he examined it. I and mean, then, I, of course, I just remember that he's actually American, so there was no accent. Never mind, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it again. <laughs> Is this a letter for me? <laughs> I'm so stupid. <laughs> he examined it, and we all held our breaths. Shall I? He started to open it. She shook her head. He nodded in understanding and tucked the envelope away. Spike moved on to the next table eventually, and then, only then, did the girl unclench her entire body. A look of shock appeared on her face, and I, for one, felt excited for her. Because she finally got what she wanted. She, she did it. I don't know if she enjoyed it. She met him, but... <laughs> I only knew that for her, to me, the best, night of the best part of the night had to be over. And I wished I could have talked to her and told her what I told myself earlier in the evening when it was my turn to get my picture taken. Now, like I said, I never loved Spike like Poppy did, though it, it is exciting when a handsome, or at least a famous person, who happens to be, or, you know, happens to be sort of handsome, but not really your type, puts his arm around you. He leans in close, and he smiles at you before he turns to the camera. Only for a moment, then the flash goes off. And then the next woman with the badge shoves you out of the way so she can get her turn with him. But before you get shoved out of the way, see, that's the nice part. This is what I wanted to say. I wish I could have seen her get her picture made with Spike. I wanted to pat her shoulder squeeze her arm, and tell her to relax. I wanted to say this is it. The part where you can pretend, or rather you are alone with him, just the two of you. And all you have to do is breathe. Thank you. If you're interested in performing, send us an email at bigtalkpodcast at gmail.com or contact us through our website at bigtalkchicago.com. And be sure to join us the fourth Tuesday of every month for a live recording at Howard Street Brewing at 1617 West Howard Street in Chicago. Blah, blah, blah. Big talk.